This podcast is brought to you by Yosemark Mountain Equipment, offering expert advice on gear for powder and the backcountry. Located at the corner of Ski Hill Road and 3rd Street in Driggs. And by Three Rivers Ranch Outfitters, offering winter trip planning services and selling gear from Patagonia, Orvis, Hatch, Rio, Sims, and more. Located at 76 North Main Street in Driggs. Many people come to the mountains for more than just fun. Some, including me, come because it's a place to heal psychologically and to move past issues. While my issues are just things like run-of-the-mill anxiety, some people come to the Tetons and other mountains with heavier burdens. That's especially true for military veterans. I'm Scott Stunts. This is Get Out the Podcast from the Teton Valley News. Today, I talk to someone who gives me an inside look at how military vets can use the mountains to deal with the issues that service brings up. Stacy Bear served in Iraq and was awarded the Bronze Star. He now writes for the Huffington Post and is director of the Sierra Club's Mission Outdoors program, which helps veterans and their families access the outdoors. In addition, he's also a North Face ambassador and was named a 2013 National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. We talk about why being in the mountains helped him deal with the substance abuse and depression he developed after his deployment. In order to understand how he healed, we have to start talking about his service and why he joined the Army in the first place. Yeah, when I was 11 years old, I wrote in one of those little getting-to-know-you homeroom worksheets that you had to do in middle school that what I wanted to be when I grew up was an officer in the military. And I always thought I was going to be in the Navy, but they denied me because my standing height was over 78 inches, and I would have had to got a waiver. And the waiver is not 100% guaranteed, especially in the 90s, right, when they didn't necessarily need people. I mean, they always need people in the military, but when they weren't looking for bodies the way they were the last, you know, 12, 13 years. And so I had to make a decision to either go Navy or go Army, and I went Army because they were willing to take me. I was walking and I had a pulse. (laughs) So I know you ended up serving in Iraq and you know, as someone who was wanting to serve in the military, had, you know, had that drive to, to serve his country, was your actual experience overseas serving at all sort of what you had expected over that period of time, you know, in ROTC and, you know, looking to do this as a, you know, growing up? Yes and no. So I had an interesting experience in that. I you know, I was commissioned in 2000, and from 2000 to 2004, obviously, we started two major wars that have come to define part of a generation. Unfortunately, I, I don't think that we can honestly say that the wars have defined a generation because America really hasn't been paying attention, right? And, and you see that still today. We just passed funding for a $35 billion, however many billion dollar fighter jet, and uh, yet we're still fighting over whether or not we should have basic healthcare coverage for everybody or should we fund our national parks or should we fund public infrastructure investments? So I think there's, there's a huge disconnect there, which is something that I didn't expect to happen. I thought America would be engaged in what we were doing and, and really thinking through how they were using the military, especially after the debacle in Vietnam. And that debacle is not on the people who served in Vietnam. That's on the people back home who couldn't figure out why we were going or could, you know, clearly yeah. send a message. So maybe the, so the expectation, like the, it wasn't just military life or the actual operations that were kind of not matching up with your expectations, but it's the country around the armed forces yeah. or around the use of force. Yeah, my expectations 
for our country around it, around the use of forces and engagement with the military didn't match up with what I had hoped and wanted. But so from 2000 to 2004, I, I tried to deploy. I was actually told by my battalion commander to stop trying to deploy. I was calling up other units and seeing if they needed somebody who could fill a slot and trying to get orders from other units and, and requests for orders from other units and um, wasn't able to go. And I went down to Sarajevo, which was a great time. I'm glad I got to serve there, but it wasn't the same as Iraq or Afghanistan, right? When you have buddies going over there and coming back or not coming back, as the case may be. So I got out in 2004 and then got recalled to the U.S. military at the end of 2005. And when I got recalled, I was really upset on the one hand because I really liked what I was doing. I was doing landmine clearance overseas. You know, I was traveling the world. I was doing good work that was in my mind, very objective for the most part, as, as to the objective good of removing landmines out of the ground. And I got recalled. And at that point, having separated from the U.S. military and also not living in the U.S. and not being around you know, our culture 24-7, I, I was able to see a very different side of our involvement and our engagement and, and think through and have to kind of answer questions that other people were, were asking me, you know, like, why is your country involved? What is the goal in Iraq? What is the goal in Afghanistan? why I'd start in Iraq after Afghanistan. And, but yet when I got recalled, I was actually pretty excited to go. And I wasn't excited to go because I believed so strongly necessarily in why the United States was there. But if you train for eight years, you know, four years in college and then four years on active duty to go to war and you never do, when you have an opportunity to go do that, which you've trained for, it's an exciting opportunity. Just like if you trained for eight years to be a journalist, and then never got to be a journalist. And then all of a sudden somebody gave you an opportunity, you'd want to take that. And it's it's really I mean, it sounds weird, I think. And I think it sounds maybe maybe it sounds like I've got bloodlust or something like that. That's I don't, but you know, we're a country that's steeped in stories of war, we're a country that's steeped in history of war. And so the opportunity to serve in, in my generation's war and, and more so the opportunity to go follow through on the commitment I made back in nineteen ninety six to my brothers and sisters, you know, they died in that war. They risked their lives in that war. So who was I when the Army called on me to then say, nope, I'm not going to go because I don't agree with how you're using me. Well, I wanted to go and see if I couldn't make a positive difference. And so so I went. And, and the experience in Iraq, I think it probably mimics a lot of, you know, if we're honest about it, I think it, it mimics a lot of other wars in that troops didn't really know why we were there, what we were doing. The day-to-day action, you know, if I break down the hours that I served every day uh, and the missions that we did every day, I think we did a hell of a job and we knew exactly what it is we were doing. As you begin to try and put those missions into context, moving up the ladder of leadership and, you know, what did August 10th, 2006 mean for the entire war, then I think you begin to lose context. Yeah. You know, and just as like a regular citizen looking back and looking at not just like what we did there, but like the intelligence that led up to it and reading about things like curveball and all of this and, and looking at some of the, the mistakes that seem pretty clear, you know, from the strategic level, like from the administration and, and things like that from hindsight, I just realized, you know, talking right now that, uh, you know, just as a, a regular citizen, it's one thing and to recognize, you know, the mistakes that our country may have made and things like that, but to actually have been there and act, to know people who have, who have died and who have gone through lots of, you know, lots of suffering and pain to try and, you know, carry out 
what we were trying to do over there, I, I realized that just has to be a completely different experience to look at in hindsight, you know, what we did. Yeah, totally. And, and I think, I mean, I had actually put down Robert Gates's book, you know, who's our secretary of defense. I, I, I couldn't read it anymore. Not that I was so upset with Robert Gates. I think Robert Gates was alone voice, one of the few voices of real reason um, at, at that position, um, at least in his telling. And of course he's writing a book. So he has a, he has an incentive to do that. But because I was so frustrated and, and you look at it now, I mean, the, the Pentagon, for God's sake, the Pentagon wants to invest or Senate or our Congress wants to invest billions of dollars in a war plan that doesn't make that nobody really needs or wants. And yet we can't get the funding for the VA that we need. And the VA is both overfunded and underfunded. We, we can't invest in education in this country. We can't invest in transportation, but we're willing to keep throwing money for what, you know, and what is it that we're doing? And, and I think, it's even with the whole Bo Bergdahl thing, right? And I don't want to wade in and say whether or not what Bo I don't know what Bo Bergdahl yeah. did. I wasn't there. I wasn't in that unit. But when you have people coming out and saying, you know, my husband or my soldier or my buddy got killed or hurt for Bo, I can see very honestly why people feel that way. But take it one step further, right? Like, if you want to blame an individual person, like your son or daughter or husband or brother or wife or daughter got hurt fighting for this country and who sent them to war and why did they go to war? And is that justified? So we want to keep asking, we want to ask relatively easy questions that are inflammatory, right? Well, why did we leave? Obama never should have pulled us out in 2011. Well, maybe he shouldn't have, but let's ask the other question. Why did we go in in 2003? Let's let's ask those questions, but we don't want to, and and we're not going to, uh, I don't think. And and that's what I think as a soldier is really really frustrating is that I signed up and said, hey, look, you all, America, tell me how I can best defend your constitution and best defend this country. And for me, coming home, recognizing that America actually hadn't had that thought process at all, you know, as a national, as a nation, we didn't really have that conversation. Some people were trying to have that conversation, but. You know, in, in the aftermath of 9-11, if you question why we're going to war in Afghanistan, you're, you're not a patriot. I mean, if the Tea Party would have stood up against the Patriot Act, I think a lot more people, I think they would have a lot more broad following. But, you know, or but, but they didn't. They stood up against health care. And that, that's when we said that there was government overreach. Um, not when we had the Patriot Act. Not when we're spending millions and billions of dollars in a war that nobody can articulate why we're there for. And if you look at those quotes, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have gone in or not. I'm saying we should have clearly articulated why we went and then had a conversation about that yeah. and not labeled everybody who was questioning that as not being a patriot. Now those, And then, and then you have to square that with, like, why did I go to war and, and, and did what I do? Was it in vain? And, and you know, and, and Marcus Luttrell, I think, got upset. You know, the guy from Lone Survivor got upset when that question was asked to him. Did your friend die in vain? That day, that mission, no, they did not die in vain. In the larger context of the war, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And then it becomes a very difficult, like, it's just difficult, right? I ask myself, why did Brian Freeman and Shane Mahaffey die, or Nate Vaco, or Dr. Holland, or, you know, pick any of the 6,000 names that are out there, and I probably got 25 or 30 or 40 or 60 that I could name. Did they die in vain? The day that they died, I would argue they didn't die in vain because they were doing their job, they were doing their mission, 
And oftentimes, and most of the time, if not all the time, they're doing it incredibly well. In the context of the war, seven years after it, having gone through, having spent a lot of time in the mountains, having spent a lot of time talking to people about my issues and, and working through my my challenges around post-traumatic stress and depression and suicidal ideation and addiction and alcoholism and feeling quite a bit different now than I did then. I think our country has to, has to ask that question. And I, for me, I don't see, you know, and this is a, for me, I, I think what we did was, was unfortunately in vain. Yeah. Now, now those, larger context questions and that question of whether it's in vain or not, besides just the obvious, you know, seeing horrible things and seeing and losing your friends, did some of those questions lead to some of those issues that you were just mentioning that you had after your deployments? Oh, totally. Right. I mean, by no means, you know, I only served one year. I was not in Fallujah. I was not in Ramadi. I was not, you know, in Karbala, which was, there was a horrible incident in Karbala when I was there. You know, I got shot at a few times, murdered a few times. I've we were in a relative, relatively few direct combat actions, although it was, it was, you know, I would say we had a fairly average, I don't know, I, I don't know if there is an average combat tour, but um, we, uh, I didn't see the worst of it by any means. And then you come home and you're, you're frustrated with all those things and then you start to have some of those feelings that later on you might identify as post-traumatic stress or depression. And then you begin to feel guilty because, you didn't experience Fallujah or Ramadi and you only had one tour and did you do enough and should you feel this bad off so little, you know, relatively so little. Um, so it kind of becomes a, you know, the exact opposite of a virtuous cycle. Right. So yeah, those things I think all led to that. And I think there's, yeah, my buddy, Michael Kim, who's a psychoanalyst and was also a veteran out in New York city talks a lot about, you know, adjustment disorder and, you know, we all, flip to post-traumatic stress and we don't really talk about the adjustment issues and but you know like i mean you live in you live in tarhi right like if you spend all winter in tarhi and you're killing the killing the pow and having a great time and everything else like that and then you, you take a trip out to chicago and there's culture shock right i mean oh yeah because yeah and, and you're like whoa who are these people like I, I definitely don't feel it you know it's all flat where's what's this big gray lake what's going on and so and Imagine the culture shock of going to Iraq and coming home, even if you didn't see combat, you know, you're just gone for a year and you're in this totally different place. So, and then you, you know, all the other things that, that stack up on top of that. Yeah. Come. So it may not be, oh, sorry, I was going to say, so it may be a little simplistic for people just to say, oh, it's PTSD. That's the reason why he's having a tough time where it's, that is something that's being layered on all of these other things, like trying to just fit into a completely different culture and place and way of thinking about stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and the percentages don't add up too, right? I mean, I think one of the challenges with the, the veteran story and the veteran narrative in America right now is that um, we're all redemptive veterans and you come home and you, you find a way to get through and, you know, and it kind of becomes a story a little bit about pity and people working on it. And, um, the challenge is, is that, yes, my story, too, is somewhat redemptive, but, you know, the majority of veterans probably don't have post-traumatic stress disorder. The majority of veterans may have adjustment issues. The majority of veterans, I would think, do have adjustment challenges when they're coming home. I think they do have some level of post-traumatic stress. Does it become a full-fledged disorder? Normally, no. 
even if all of us who served in Iraq had post-traumatic stress disorder, there would still be probably four or five times more Americans that didn't serve that had post-traumatic stress disorder. And yet we're the ones who everyone's afraid to work with a veteran because they're going to flip. And, you know, the media focuses on those really interesting stories, right? Yeah. It's like, I think my, my buddy DJ Skelton, who's a rock climber and, a, and snowboarder and skier and everything, you know, he's missing an eye and a palate. And I think the he's quoted me, I think 127 veterans over the last 12 years have lost an eye or become some level of, of visually impaired over the last 12 years. It's, it's, it, that number is in the thousands every year in this country. You know, what is that? But, but we can so focus because DJ lost his eye in service of the country. And so I think sometimes as opposed to we as veterans too, like we fall into it because we come home and there's, there's all sorts of perks from being a veteran and there's all sorts of perks from being, a, you know, a disabled veteran or, and, and not that anybody would choose those perks at all, but you do get stuff for it. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, America, America doesn't know how to respond and they, they want to do better than they did in Vietnam. And so they, this is how they're responding. And, and I think by and large it comes from a really good place, but we lose sight of the fact that, and, and we as veterans sometimes lose sight of the fact that we have an opportunity here to go out and help America better understand mental health issues, not just for veterans, but for everybody. And we have an opportunity here to, when we talk about let's end veteran homelessness, we should say, let's end veteran homelessness as we end all homelessness. Let's end unemployment, veterans unemployment, as we end all veterans unemployment. And hey, veterans who have gone through this, can you help us lead? Can you help us lead? And what are your ideas so that we can end all homelessness? Because I think one of the things that's often lost in the debate and the conversation is, is that I have trauma. How I got my trauma and, and why I got my trauma is probably different than how you, Scotty, if you have trauma, may have got your trauma. Yeah. And um, if you have trauma, and I don't, I don't mean to be assuming that, but... Oh, no, that's... But, but you and I probably both have trauma, and if we both get to the mountains at the same time, and the mountains don't give a crap how you got your trauma or how I got my trauma... And you and I are out there, and we're doing a backcountry ski on the on the backside of of the Tetons, and we get to know each other, and we have to depend on each other, and we have to I have to trust that you know how to dig an abbey pit, and you have to trust that I know how to read conditions as well. By the end of the day, we're going to have talked about whether or not we have a huge conversation or not. We're going to feel pretty bonded to one another, and we're going to feel closer to one another. And as we're sitting around at night or at a campfire, if we're on a big tour, we're going to get to know one another, and we're going to we're going to going to be able to ease that trauma for both of us. Yeah. And we have that opportunity as veterans, and I don't think that we're taking it as fully as we should be. And maybe that's because we're still healing ourselves. You know, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is that, like, obviously I've I've never served, I've never been in combat or anything like that, but one of the reasons why I moved out here was, you know, just unpacking that, you know, I wouldn't say trauma, but like that personal baggage and anxiety and, you know, the things, issues you had in your life. And there's just something about coming into the mountains that I don't know exactly what it is, but it helps you go through that stuff. And as someone who you're talking about, everyone has their own trauma. And I was, you know, just thinking that veterans have much more issues usually than a skinny farm kid from Iowa, you know, that 
drives me out here to to move the mountain. So I just wanted to bounce that off somebody who had, you know, gone through the stuff that you did about, you know, just coming to the mountains and what it is about this environment or climbing specifically or even backcountry skiing that allows, you know, people to work through that stuff. And also it, it sounded like that, you know, part of it is that the mountains don't, like you're saying, the mountains don't give a crap. They they don't have that sort of pity angle that you were kind of mentioning before. It's just sort of like a a place that almost equalizes people out because they they kind of have to. Yeah. So you know, I think I think there's a there's a few thing about about the mountains, and I think climbing and backcountry skiing are great in the sense that they help provide a certain level of camaraderie. And, and mission and purpose, right? Like we're going to get to the top of that and then we're going to ski down. But both sports, as much as they have a team and community aspect to it, there's also a tremendous amount of individuality, right? I mean, you can go on a climbing team, but both individuals have to be matched well enough to be able to get up a pitch. You can go into the backcountry as a pair, as a team of four or whatever, but each individual has to make it up the mountain and then make it back down. So I think there's that interplay is good, that team aspect, but also kind of putting it back on the individual. But I think climbing and, and skiing and, and backpacking are, I don't want to say gimmicks, but it's a device, right? It's a positive trigger that gets you to the point where you're in the mountains and you can, and the mountains reflect back on you. And I think personally, I love the exercise, the activity and the focus of one foot after another and just thinking about how to get up and everything else goes away as you're focused on the task directly in front of you, whether it's climbing or, you know, checking up some crazy peak in the wintertime or whatever. And so I think that goes hand in hand with the mountains. But when you get on top of the mountain, I mean, that's where we're all trying to go at some yeah. level. And I think that's where the, you know, you kind of, you look out and you see all these other mountains and you see all these other opportunities for adventure and other opportunities for steps and you can reflect on the clouds as they go over you know growing up in, the, in on the great plains and in, in, in this big massive prairie it being in the mountains is not unlike watching a thunderstorm roll across right i mean it's the same type of sensation you something bigger than yourself you feel small yeah there's something so much bigger than you and so much huger than you and there's so many possibilities of what can happen is that thunderstorm is ro- rolling across the plains or when you're out in the mountains i think you know, and people are like, oh, what was it like growing up in South Dakota? I'm like, well, you know, one of the best parts was, was the thunderstorms. You know, obviously, it's it's pretty cool, too, if you're on a small rise in the prairie and you can see out for miles and just see that massive, massive horizon. There's something pretty inspiring about that, too. And But it also can be kind of frightening, right? You feel so tiny and small. And for some reason, I think for some of us out in the mountains, feeling that tiny and small is an inspiration. But, yeah, the mountains are, I think, what's for lack of a better term, you know, the mountains are what's healed me. The mountains are what has really made sense for me. But I've had similar feelings in the desert. I've had similar feelings in, you know, in the North Woods in Minnesota and back here out on the prairie and um, still vividly recall, you know, being an angry teenager at 16 and running for, you know, running like 12 miles and then stopping and realizing I was in the middle of a cornfield somewhere and had to walk home and it's pouring rain on you. And, it, you know, it's, it's kind of that same feeling, but um, I think it's a lot easier to access that part of your brain and that that part of your mind in the mountains than it is anywhere else. And I think that's why the mountains are really important. And I also think that that's what we fought for. You know, I think our public lands embody the best parts of our 
cultural philosophy around life, liberty, and justice for all. So, and, but yeah, it's the mountains. I mean, for me, it's the mountains are the easiest place where I've been able to access those feelings and, and get better and feel like life is really worth living. And, you know, I love to climb. And over the last couple of years, I, I would definitely say that I've transitioned more into being a skier and maybe that's growing up in South Dakota and, and living eight months in cold and snow, but I get seasonal affectation disorder in reverse. As the snow starts to melt and I realize that we're not going to be able to ski anymore, I, get, I start getting depressed. And buddies of mine are heading down to Chile tomorrow and I don't get to go with them. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and it breaks my heart because I have, you know, got to go to the OR show and, uh, you know, I don't have the vacation time and everything else like that. And they're showing me pictures of their skis and I'm like, dude, you should totally be coming. So, you know, next September I'll get down to Chile, but hopefully. Um, but yeah, it's this the snow, the mountains, and you know, even in Utah year round, you can find the snow in the mountains. But yeah, it, it's the mountains that. I, mean, I think the other thing is is that you can't fake anybody out in the mountains, right? I mean, it's a pretty accurate reflection of who you are at that point in time. Yeah. yeah. Those sometimes that almost gets a little bit uh, not intimidating, but you realize that like if you go on a date or something and you're mountain biking you can't like you can't bluff your way through it like you're gonna find out pretty quick like your date will find out pretty quick if you you know pitch over your bars whether what you've been saying about yourself is true or if you were just saying oh yeah i'm great and you know and you're you were totally full of it you know what i mean totally yeah whereas like you know when i played rugby and i loved rugby and it was it's an ultimate team game but if i'm having a bad day if i'm hurt other people can step up around me and, and we can still win the game. But uh, if, you, if you can't handle the trail, you're going to be walking around mountain bike home. Yeah, <laughs> which I've done maybe once or twice since moving to Utah a few years ago. But <laughs> Yeah, man. Like, yeah, I had um, an incredibly humbling day where, you know, early season last year, the snow conditions were pretty crappy. I was dropping down into the brush and into the sage and everything else like that and I just popped my skis off and I had to walk down and um, my buddy was incredibly kind and generous to me until we got to the car and then he let me have it but <laughs> thanks to Stacy Bear for talking to me today the music on today's show comes from Extra Extra and was used under the Creative Commons license I'm Scott Stunts thanks for listening <laughs>